Hello and welcome to the West Sussex Libraries podcast, which we're calling Lend Us Your Ears. We're very excited about this new project and hope to bring you many more downloads in future. In February, we held three events over Zoom as part of the BBC's Novels That Shaped Our World campaign. We acted as book detectives to talk to best-selling authors about their relationship with reading and how it has influenced their work. We will, of course, also be talking to them about their own novels. Inevitably, there were many literary recommendations which we have captured for you in our show notes. The first conversation was with Ellie Griffiths, which took place on February 8th. Hello, a very warm welcome to this special virtual event with West Sussex Libraries and with best-selling author Ellie Griffiths. And this is as part of the Novels That Shaped Our World BBC campaign. My name's Katie and I'm Principal Librarian and I'm recording this tonight from Lansing Library. We're absolutely thrilled to welcome you all to this digital event. We feel very privileged to have Ellie with us tonight, especially within a week of her new Ruth Galloway publication, The Nighthawks, and in advance of the paperback publication of The Postscript Murders which should be of great interest to our audience as it's based in Shoreham and features lots of numerous local landmarks and even a character that worked part-time at Shoreham Library, which we were very excited to see. Ellie Griffiths is the pen name of Domenica de Rosa and she's written four novels in her own name that are all about Italy, family and identity. It was with the conception of Dr Ruth Galloway and her first case in The Crossing Places that it was suggested that she might need a crime writer's name and started publishing as Ellie Griffiths. There have now been over a dozen Ruth Galloway novels and she's become one of the most popular British detective series, winning numerous awards. In addition to this series, Ellie also has written a series of Brighton mysteries set in the 1950s and featuring a detective and a magician and a couple of recent contemporary crime novels, The Stranger Diaries and The Postscript Murders, and they're set on the Sussex coast. We're hoping to enjoy our investigation tonight into the reading tastes and habits of Ellie and learn more about the books that have influenced her writing career. So without further ado, good evening Ellie and thank you for joining us tonight. Hi Katie, thank you for having me, I'm really excited. Also excited to be inside, sure you were Lansing Library, but you know, I'm sure (laughs) Peggy Smith has been to Lansing Library before, so it's very (laughs) exciting to me. It's brilliant, thank you. And actually on this snowy day, we were just saying it's quite nice that we're able to do this event and nobody has to leave the house and worry about trains not arriving or... Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm in a shed. I'm not far away. I just live in Saltdean, just outside Brighton. But it's quite a drive, isn't it, over there? And I, I'm just in a shed at the bottom of my garden. I can see the snow falling. So it's very cosy. It's very nice. <laughs> you nice just right for a chat about books. Excellent. Thank you. How have you found reading over lockdown? I know some of our borrowers have found the time, you know, in isolation to read all the books they've meant to read and, and tackle the big ones. And then other people have told us that they've found sort of difficult to concentrate particularly on new things during this time? I'm very much in awe of someone who took this time to read sort of War and Peace or something. I really am. Um, For me, I have read a lot, but it's absolutely been rereading. I've gone into a real binge of rereading and and comfort reads, I suppose, really. So I've reread a lot of Georgette Hare. I'm a big Georgette Hare fan, which I I guess people would probably know from my books. Um, (laughs) Yes, I've read lots of Georgette Hare. I've reread the whole of Lord of the Rings, which I... Really did enjoy. It's not a bad book to read for these times because the characters keep saying things like, I I wish I wasn't living in these times. And Gandalf (laughs) says, so does everyone who lives in such times that we must go forward or something Gandalfy. And it was quite, quite reassuring. I've also reread all the Cazalet 
Chronicles by um, Elizabeth Jane Howard, which I just enjoyed so, so much. So really, it has been lots of rereading, lots mm. of comfort read, P.G. Woodhouse as well, Cold Comfort Farm, just a, a lot of those sort of books. But yeah. yeah, I have really loved it. Yeah, well, you've read some pretty big ones there, I'd say. Lord of the Rings has got to be one of the the, the big tomes, isn't it? But I yes, think it that... is. And I read it, I have to say this time, I had it on Kindle. And it and it's quite it's quite um disconcerting on Kindle because, of course, you feel you've read a lot and it says you've only read 5% of it. You know, yes, there's no actual feel, is there? Yes. Well, you've got through. I think there's something about rereading, isn't there? There's a particular comfort in maybe I don't know sort of knowing that the resolution is going to come and when everything feels so uncertain I suppose the certainty of reading something that you I think you know that's really that. true isn't it and it's funny how I read quite a lot of contemporary crime partly because I get sent a lot really you know to blurb it or just because I know the author and I love that but it's quite tense reading it for the first time so you don't know what's going to happen and it's funny how comforting even sort of murder mysteries are when you know what's going to happen isn't it it's very it's a very strange thing <laughs> And do you, do you always remember what's going to happen? Because I'm terrible for having read something before and then not remembering how it's all going to end. I don't always remember. Or I'm one of those very annoying people if you're watching an adaptation, say, of Agatha Christie, and I say, I know who did it. And then somebody says, well, who then? And I say, well, I'm not sure, actually, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure I know. So, yes, yeah, I, I keep thinking, oh, could it be them? Or could it be? So, no, I don't remember, which is quite good, really, isn't it? It means you can enjoy it all over again. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This is an event that's come about, it's novels that shape the world. So we're sort of getting to think about the different books that you've read and books that have meant a lot to you. So just to start, really, I wanted to ask you about your favourite books as a child. The first book that I remember reading myself and just sitting and I think spending all day reading it was Alice in Wonderland. I, and I'm in my memory, I was sitting under a table reading it. <laughs> and I suppose it had a huge impression on me, partly just because also it told me that that was a legitimate way of spending the day. You know, <laughs> my mum particularly was very, very big reader. And she obviously encouraged me to do this. I got two older sisters. They, they're big readers as well. So, you know, I was just kind of allowed to sit there reading. And, and Alice Wonder is such a wonderful, magical, I know some people find it quite almost quite scary but with, with, with Alice getting smaller and bigger and eat me, drink mm. me. But I love that. And you can definitely see, definitely see its influence in my writing. I, I'm certainly sure of that. So, yeah, I remember reading that. Also, later on, I was very keen on Noel Stretfield. Oh, yeah. And I loved, um, even though I didn't do ballet or go to a theatrical school, but I read all those ballet school books. I knew just how to curtsy when you met Madame and, you know, <laughs> all those sort of things. Um, but also, um, really, I loved The Painted Garden, which is one that's set in where they go to Ireland for the summer. Such a beautiful book, actually. Actually, mm -hmm. no, that's The Growing Summer. Painted Garden is when they go to America. And that's also an amazing book. So I loved those. I love Jennings, Jennings in Derbyshire. Whenever I think of a name for a character, yeah. I always think of that discussion. Do you remember the discussion Je um, Jennings in Derbyshire had when they're, they're going to write a detective story? And they're going to write a detective story and they decide what to call their, their sleuth. And they decide that all detectives have two syllable first names and one syllable second name. <laughs> and after lots of discussion, they come up with Flixton Slick Super Sleuth. <laughs> and I always think of Flixton Slick Super Sleuth when I think of um, think of a, a new name for a character. So, yeah, so I was a big reader as a child and I just read all sorts of things, you know. Yeah, that's brilliant. Everything that was around, really. Yeah, and those, those character names are quite 
it's quite good fun isn't it kind of it's like those things where you say well think of your you know your whatever name and think of your you know your pet and your mother's yes. name sticker thing it's that is that kind of um yeah get the right number of syllables and it just about sounds right and the name is very important i always say this because um we were talking earlier i teach creative writing really near you at west dean um in chichester and one of the one of the things I always get my students to do at the beginning of term, I ask them what their name is, obviously. But I say, tell me why you're called that. So um, because a name for a writer is instant backstory. So uh, if, if somebody is Mary, well, are you Mary after Mary, the mother of God or Mary Berry? You know, it's a different story. You know, mm. uh, do you know why you're Katie or are you Catherine? Really? Yes. I, yeah. See, that's it. I'm a Katie and I'm not a Catherine. Ah. Um, which is, yeah. Often sort of not so much these days, but certainly at school, you know, teachers. Yes, people would say, them. what's your what's your real name? Yeah. And it's it's. it's in my books, actually, in the Ruth books, uh, I have a character called Kate, who somebody always calls Katie. Yeah. And there it is one of those things, isn't it? Kate, Katie thinks so. See, we've already, there's already yeah. something, you know, about that, really. Yeah, yeah. And obviously with you and your um, your pen name, um, well, that's a big part of it. That's right, because my real name, as you said, and by the way, Katie, pronounced perfectly, which isn't always the thing. Thank you. <laughs> my real name's Domenica De Rosa, which sounds made up. <laughs> it, sounds like, it sounds like a pseudonym doesn't it really does sound made up but it is my real name it's Italian my dad was Italian and it, and it means Sunday of the Rose in Italian um, which is so pretty and as you say I did write four books as Domenica De Rosa but then was told to get a crime name and and I suppose in retrospect I sort of I don't know why I did it really but I chose my grandmother's name she was Ellen Griffiths right and I wanted to be Ellen Griffiths, actually. And then for some reason, I, when I first saw the book, my name was Ellie with a Y. And I remember saying to my publisher, why, why is it Ellie? And she said, oh, she said, uh, just looked a bit tidier. <laughs> and there you are. I became Ellie just because it looks a bit tidier. But if you see the book, it does fit quite neatly there between yeah. the G and the S. So, um, yeah, so there you are. But even a pseudonym, even a pseudonym has a story. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, I guess you didn't know when you first, well, I don't know, maybe you did, but when you did that first Ruth Galloway, I guess you didn't realise that you would have this sort of long series of crime novels and that the name would stick in that way necessarily. Absolutely not. No, I just assumed that if I was ever lucky enough to be published again, it would be again as Domenica De Rosa. You know, I just, I suppose that's why in a way I was quite cavalier about choosing it. Although interestingly, um, something that, um, I used to say, because I, I was a publisher before I was a writer, and we used to say to authors that, oh, when you go into a bookshop or a library, A is up there, Z's down there, what's on eye level is FGH. And we often used to get them, if they were choosing a pseudonym, to, to, to choose an FGH name. So I was quite, just out of chance, I managed to pick, you know, an eye level name. Of course, it depends, that really does, it just sort of depends how tall you are. My eyes are probably on S or something, but um, yes. Yeah, but I didn't. You're quite right. I did not think that I would now. And I think this, uh, the Night Hawks, I think it's my 22nd Ellie Griffiths book. You know, I never thought I would become better known as Ellie Griffiths. But at least it is a family name. And I think my grandma would be pleased. So. And the thing is with DeRosa, you'll find people putting your book back under D and under R and not knowing which bit. Yes. So you've got a nice It's a nightmare. It's, it's a small, my mum was very keen on it being the small D-E. And then capital R. So I don't know where that gets you. At least I don't have to 
have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> and I was going to then ask after sort of childhood books, thinking about the kind of books you read as a teenager or a young adult, and if you've got a memory of your sort of first grown-up books that you read. Well, yes, I have actually. I was I was quite a sickly child. I had all the normal childhood illnesses but that, that we had before the MMR jab. And I think my, my parents moved from Brighton to London. I think that was partly for my health, you know, because I did get ill quite often. And I had loads and loads of tonsillitis and, and then glandular fever. So I was always kind of ill with something. Though actually, Touchwood, now I'm super healthy. But I always used to, anyhow, so I remember once when I was ill with something, my mum going to the library, she said she was a keen reader, keen member of the library, and coming home with these three salmon pink books. And they were um, by Maisel de la Roche, Canadian writer. And it's a saga. I don't know if you still have them in the library. And it's called The White Oak Saga. And it's a saga about a family from the building of their house in, in Ontario all the way through generations upon generations. Like they're about sort of 20 books or something. And when my mum was young, they were a huge thing and people were waiting for Maisa de la Roche to come out with the next one. And they, I think they were already old fashioned by the time I read them. But they were perfect. And I read my way through this. So these, those are the first sort of adult books. And my goodness, they were quite adults <laughs> because there was a lot of, I mean, affairs and heaving bosoms. There was a ravine or the, the lovers always used to meet in a ravine. And I don't think I knew what a ravine was. <laughs> and even now, I think it's a bit dodgy if I find out. And they were always meeting in a ravine with, with, their, with their bosoms pumped. Yeah, and and the, the hero was called Rennie. And he was red haired and just absolutely uh, irresistible, it seemed, to women. Never really explained why he was so irresistible to women. But yes, <laughs> and they were just ama amazing books. So, uh, and I think she was actually a very good writer. Um, I don't really know very much about her. So they were the first sort of adult books I remember reading. Mm -hmm. I read them as a teenager. And because I'm a big rereader, I have reread them all fairly recently. Mm. And found just as good some of the attitudes, great, of course, but actually really, quite amazing amazing it can be I, quite strange can't it when you reread something and, and go back to it and see if it it stands up but no yeah and some things do make you sort of wince a bit now you know when you're rereading things even sort of Josephine Tay or something like that that the sort of snobbishness or some of the attitudes you think oh but generally speaking I think <laughs> that the White Oak books really do hold up quite well you know and and they are just a, a great read really yeah, and you have to read these things in the context in which they're they're written. Don't yeah, you? I think you do. You know, to to an extent, yes. Yeah. Um, but they and they but they are they're a family saga really, and I like family sagas. And recently, um, I read. I don't think I've ever read it before. The Foresight Saga, and that was yes. I loved that as well. So I really do like family sagas and the Cazalet Chronicles. I mentioned those too. Yes, yeah, they're brilliant, aren't they? Have you ever read a book or can you think of books that have made you cry? I'm quite a crier. <laughs> so quite a few have, but the book as a child that made me cry so much. And really, I, I, um, I recommend it to my children. I've got two grown up children, uh, but when they were young, I recommended it to them. And they said, well, and, and they used to cry at quite a lot of things, but they couldn't see why this book was so sad because it actually has a happy ending. And it's The Incredible Journey by Sheila Burford. Mm -hmm. And it's about, and it was made into a film as well. Oh, my goodness, the film. Don't go and see the film. And it's about three animals, a, um, a, a retriever, a bull terrier, and a cat who go on this amazing journey across America. I think it's based on a true story, but, 
oh my goodness i can tell you so I'm, even though i'm not very good at remembering who did things i have quite good memory for lines and i can remember the last lines of it but i won't give them to you because they're just i don't know i just start welling up so yeah so the incredible journey was made me cry black beauty made me cry yeah any sort of animal book really um mm -hmm. uh, the folly down is another one isn't it oh worship down mm -hmm. yes worship down is super exciting and scary as well it's a great book yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's that's another one that's kind of quite an adult looking away, isn't it? Even though it's sort of, yeah, sort of. Well, it is because they meet these totalitarian rabbits, don't they? And <laughs> and you know that's very scary. And also the, the the amazing sort of mythology that they have about El Herrera and the Prince of the Thousand Enemies. Uh, and the black rabbit, the black rabbit of Inlay. Who would have thought a black rabbit could be so scary? There are some very scary bits, but I guess that's what makes it such a such a really absorbing good book, actually. I'm going to come back and ask you about some of your favourite books and things, but I have a feeling that there'll be people at home thinking, ask her about her own books. We want to talk about Booth Galloway. So I'm going to um, I'm going to ask you a few questions about your books that have come in from other people. And then we'll go back and ask you some more questions about some of the books that you've enjoyed over your life. I've had one question that said, I've just bought your, your latest Ruth Galloway book, The Nighthawks, eagerly awaited. As a native of Norfolk, can I ask you if you're planning to continue the series there? And that oh, that's so, Angela. so lovely. Hi, Angela. Lovely to speak to a Norfolk person. Uh, so this is book 13. So The, the Nighthawks is book 13. And uh, so I couldn't end the series on 13, could I? Because that would just be unlucky. So, um, and I have started number 14. So there will be this. I do, I do. The series won't go on forever. There won't be loads and loads more books, but there will be at least two more. And uh, I'm writing number 14 now. Fantastic. And with the um, with the Nighthawks, can you tell us where we are at the moment with Ruth and without giving too much away what we can expect from this new one? Yes, of course. So the Nighthawks starts when some metal detectorists, uh, so-called Nighthawks, uh, find a body on the beach in North Norfolk. So we're right back. The book before was The Lantern Men and we had Ruth in, in, Corm in Cornwall, I don't know why she was in Cornwall suddenly, uh, in Cambridge. So a little bit, little bit out of, of her normal comfort zone. But now she's right back in North Norfolk. She's actually head of department at the university. And so the book starts when these metal detectorists find a body on the beach. And so Nelson is called in, but Ruth is also called in because as well as a body, as well as a modern day body, they find a Bronze Age skeleton. So she comes in to look at the skeleton. But of course, the two cases become intermeshed and some of the action takes place there on the North Norfolk coast. But some at a very spooky farmhouse called Black Dog Farm, where as soon as Nelson goes to Black Dog Farm, all his Norfolk colleagues are. And I'm sure Angela's heard this story. All his Norfolk colleagues are at pains to tell him about the legend of the Black Shuck this mysterious black dog that appears and it's uh, meant to be bad luck if it appears to you. So that's another part of the story takes place in this sinister farm. Oh, we're talking of black dog, as we were just talking about the um, Watership Dan and, and those other books, somebody asked us on the Q&A, have you ever thought about writing an animal book? So there's the oh, uh, that's <laughs> there's a, an animal that's, in this one. <laughs> that's a good question. I do really like writing about animals. I once wrote a short story from the point of view of Ruth's cat, Flint, so I wouldn't mind doing maybe another short story like that. I don't know. One of the things my editor always says to me, though, when when I've, I've been very lucky is I've had the same editor for all the Ellie books. And she's called um, Jane Wood. And she's a sort of legend in publishing, amazing editor. 
one of the things that two things she's always says to me one is cut out the adverbs <laughs> and the other thing is don't anthropomorphize the animals because otherwise I would say things like Ruth has a cat called Flint and I have a cat and I'd say something like oh Flint was feeling bored and Jane will say in the margins no he isn't he's a cat Which, um, cats can feel bored Jane she doesn't have a cat <laughs> she doesn't have a cat no she doesn't really understand that, that cats can feel bored and so uh yes I, I i i think maybe i might not be able to sustain a whole book but i'd love to do some more sort of animal mm. short stories yeah yeah and in the stranger diaries um herbert isn't it is it the dog herbert yes yes yeah, well done, yeah. a big character isn't he in his own right <laughs> he is a big character he's quite a small fluffy dog but he is a big character and i sort of do uh slightly sort of play with the idea of, of animals in literature in that book because Herbert's owner Claire teaches creative writing and she says at the beginning of the book that writers often use an animal to ratchet up the tension you know of, of an animal scared and looking round and it's nervous but also sometimes they kill off the animal so I think a lot of people were, were quite scared for Herbert but I'm going to give you all a spoiler here to say Herbert survives the book. <laughs> He does. We're pleased to see. <laughs> and Christina from Worthing uh, wrote a, a question in that was said the Ruth Galloway series has an element of spirituality to them that I find a particular draw. What books have influenced you that include this theme so strongly? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, Christina, was it? I don't think I've been asked that before. I'm really interested in, in belief and, and what people believe. Um, I was brought up a Catholic and would still kind of consider myself, I guess, a sort of liberal Catholic. Um, Ruth is an atheist. The detective in the book, um, Nelson, is a lapsed Catholic. There's another big character in the books, um, Cathbad, who's a druid. Um, but was actually brought up Catholic and is, is is now a Druid. So all sorts of all sorts of spiritualities and beliefs and, and no belief uh, in the books. And I was very influenced when I grew up by the sort of, I suppose, sort of Ang Anglo-Catholic writers like um, Graham Greene and um, Evelyn Waugh and Piers Paul Reed. Piers Paul Reed's a married man had a big influence on me as well and and brides had revisited at, at a certain age so i i really and, and also poetry of t.s Eliot. so very very into that sort of you know catholic writers uh, mm. british catholic writers um genre just not a genre but you know yeah. what i mean yeah yeah exactly with that context and a lot of your books kind of um give us insight into different historical eras particularly obviously the ruth galloway's world war and bronze age as you say and other other periods I wondered if um, there were any examples of books that you've really enjoyed where you've managed to kind of learn about historical events or social history by the osmosis of just reading a good story. That's a great question. It is, isn't it? It's by osmosis, really. Um, I love historical fiction, actually. It's a real love of mine. I mentioned Georgia Hare, who is, you know, we can, and I'm smiling when I talk about Georgia Hare, but she was famous for wonderful research. And I think one of her books, I think it's An Infamous Army, is used at Sandhurst to teach uh, warfare, you know, because she mm. really did her research. And so, yes, I, I feel like I know about the region. Also, I live in Brighton, which is a Regency town and does feature mm -hmm. in quite a few George Hare books, that Regency buck. So um, those I absolutely love. But more recently, I'm a huge, huge fan of the Shard Lake books yes, uh, by C.J. Sanderson, who's another Sussex writer. And yeah. I absolutely adore all his books, but particularly the Shard Lake books, which are set in Tudor times. Mm -hmm. First one is Dissolution. 
Um, and I'm just in awe of the way that he, he's, he isn't he incredible? Because yeah, it's the atmosphere that he creates, isn't the it? The atmosphere, and you can yeah. sort of, I think it's the second one, Dark Fire, where it's in, he's in London, it's a heat wave, and you can smell it, can't mm -hmm. you? And as a horse lover, I love the fact that he sort of talks about his horse as well and what that was like. And yes, and, and the, the, I think also he must be one of the very best writers writing about the reformation because he feels to me very very um even-handed the way he talks about the monasteries and yeah. of course there was some corruption but then again they, they did form a social function and all that's there in the books and shard lake such a wonderfully conflicted and moral character at the center of them so i really if anyone hasn't read them yeah. i can't recommend them enough and the most recent one um was set in Norfolk actually it's called Tombland and it's yeah. amazing and I um I've got a good friend William Shaw who I, I don't know if you yes. I'm sure you've come across him Katie he was, a, yeah. he was another really good Brighton writer friend of the William, <laughs> William and CJ Sanson Chris Sanson are in the same writers group can you imagine how brilliant that writers group is but <laughs> also can imagine being scared to read it's intimidating it, isn't it for the I others. know really mm -hmm. and um Chris Sanson said to William that in um when he was writing Tombland, he spent two weeks researching sheep, wow. Tudor sheep, because they were different sheep. And literally in the book, it, there are only two lines about sheep. But he yeah. had, you know, you believe yeah. those two yeah. lines because he had <laughs> so long researching them. Wow, well, there you go. Let's see what questions have come through. Somebody says, uh, what classic crime book do you wish you had written? That was James. Oh, hi, Jane. Oh, well, I think it would have to be The Moonstone. Um, I, I'm a huge Wilkie Collins fan. Mm -hmm. He's probably the writer that has influenced me the most. And um, his books are some of my favourite books. Mm. I absolutely love The Moonstone. It's sometimes called the oldest and the longest British detective story. And I think it's 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 called the sort of first detective story because I think it's when we first see a detective doing detecting and it's Sergeant Cuff. And it wasn't until years later that I realised I've got a Sergeant Clough in my books. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sorry, I must have osmosis as you said Katie, <laughs> filtered in and as I said earlier names are important so obviously somehow that's mm. happened but the, the brilliance of the moonstone is also in the setting that amazing setting on the, on the shivering sands and the sense that 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 is in itself a character in the book but also the fact that unusually for a detective story the main crime is actually a robbery it's the, the theft of this this incredible jewel uh, the moonstone of the title and although there are deaths in the book the central thing is, is a theft, but such is Wilkie Collins' genius that you actually feel that that's like a murder when that goes missing. It's it's just so, so clever. So, yeah, maybe that's the classic crime book I wish I'd written. Either that or The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought you, because um, Wilkie Collins uh, features in the, um, the Stranger Diaries and the Facebook murders. So Yes, um, I'm afraid he pops up in quite a few of my books. Yeah, yeah. And there's lots of uh, references to Shakespeare as well in your books, aren't there, in the different Yeah, I'm a big Shakespeare I'm mm -hmm. a big Shakespeare fan. I, I read English at university and I had a particularly good Shakespeare tutor. And he Richard Proudfoot he was called and he edited the Arden Shakespeare. So he was a real a real expert. But I, I do love Shakespeare and I have a lot of Shakespeare in my head. <laughs> which um we used to go for long walks and i'd say to my kids shall i start with macbeth because i could almost do the whole of macbeth and they would say no please don't <laughs> um but yeah so shakespeare does and i just think that really nobody has done certain things better than him and actually i've just read a really interesting non-fiction book by bill bryson oh, about yes. shakespeare 
and so interesting just a short book but it really did make me look at Shakespeare in a different way and one of the things one of the bits he pulled out was the beginning of Hamlet so Hamlet begins something like who's there unfold yourself Bernardo he God save the king and those the first few lines I think there's about 15 sort of syllables in them and immediately you know what do you know you know it's dark because he can't see him who's there unfold yourself and take off your cloak you know they're nervous you know there's a king you know everything in those few lines i mean what genius really yeah, yeah so clever have you read um maggie o'farrell's hamlet yeah do you know i haven't although i am a maggie o'farrell fan i just i am a bit scared of it being sad is it because of course we know what happens to hamlet yes it is sad but don't let that put you off okay. it's it's another one of those books where the atmosphere is just, yeah, brilliantly written and gave me a real different insight into Hamlet play and and Shakespeare and, and his oh, whole family life. And yeah, it's just, I mean, she like, yeah, she's brilliant. She's one of my favourites and you're yes. in safe hands with Maggie O'Farrell. But it's um it's emotionally, yeah, it is very sad, but it's um it's worth the payoff, it's worth the tissues. Yeah, it's really I must read it. I loved this must be the place. I thought yes. that was just incredible so i will i even found the hamlet storyline sad and i thought it was very well done in the upstock crow on television you know oh, yes. just, yeah. just, i thought they were very brave to do it actually yeah. and it was very sad yeah it's really good um so many questions are coming through so i'm going to try and get to another audience question i was gifted the crossing places anonymously and have utterly inhaled the whole ruth galloway series in about two months i've totally fallen in love with north norfolk all over again so thank you has there been a book or series which you were given that have totally gripped you and have made you want to read every other stories in the series? Oh, what a great question. And thank you to whoever gave you the first oh, book. That was Amy, yes. Oh, hi, Amy. <laughs> thank you. And also the fact that you read through them in, in a couple of months. That's really good going. Thank you. I do remember that I've mentioned it before, but when I was 11, I think I've got, I've got two older sisters, Julia and Sheila. And for my for Christmas, they gave me The Lord of the Rings. And I just do remember it. Particularly, I can just remember the books. They're in the sort of cardboard um, carrier and there's a green with those trees on them. And I just remember being given that and reading it for the whole of Christmas and just thinking, wow, I can't believe that I've been given an entry into this world, you know, and it still feels to me like one of the most magical presents I've ever had. So, uh, you know, thanks to my big sisters for that, really. But yes, yeah, so I think there have been quite a few series. I, I mentioned um, uh, the White Oak books as well. They get you into that whole world, aren't they? And they sort of, uh, but also I've been really grateful to dive into a lot of um crime worlds really you know uh to uh the Anne Cleves books and uh the the Ian Rankin books um and I think most recently possibly the Kate Atkinson's crime series um, yeah, with Jackson Brody I've been really enjoyed yeah. him as a character and getting into that world I, I love the way she writes and uh, yeah. I've got a good friend as well Leslie Thompson who again is a Sussex writer yeah. uh, the Detective Daughter series I absolutely recommend that because that's a world and characters you can lose yourself in completely I mean she is unlike any other character Stella yeah. Darnell yeah she's another person who has done events for us and is, is brilliant her book yeah she is really brilliant yeah, she, we really teach together sure. at West Dean as well somebody asks Caroline Cathbad is one of my favourite ever fictional writers. Is he based on someone you know? Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you like Cathbad. Cathbad's the druid character that I mentioned early on. Um, he's not exactly based on anyone I know, but I do have a very good friend from school who is now a druid. So um, her, her journey, I suppose, has informed 
possibly the way I present Catholic bad. I mean, my friend and I went, went to a Catholic school, Cardinal Newman in Hove, if anyone knows it. Um, and um, just sort of have taken sort of different spiritual paths, I guess. But I, I really respect her views and I wanted to show that in the character of Cathbad and also to show the way that Cathbad um, kind of believes in everything really because he's quite happy to pray to his, his patron saint as well as uh, lighting a sacred bonfire. He does like lighting bonfires. But uh, so a little bit, so she probably informed him a little bit, but also the fact that the first book, The Crossing Place, is the first Ruth book, uh, is about the discovery of this Bronze Age Henge, and this obviously really happened. And when uh, the, the archaeologists wanted to take the timbers away, local druids in Norfolk complained and protested. And I remember when I first started reading the story thinking, wow, local druids, you know, <laughs> only in Norfolk in a way. Do you have just local druids? But maybe Norfolk and Brighton, I don't know, the two places where you might have. So um, it, it was very much sort of part of the story. So I want, so that's how, how a druid came to be so sort of centre stage in those books. Really glad you like him. I love writing about Cathbad and he's quite, he, he plays quite a big part in, in the, the recent book in um, uh, Nighthawks. Excellent, thank you. We came to this project originally, we were looking at the novels that shaped our world list and we had Sherlock Holmes in mind and it's partly why we've invited crime writers along. We were looking to hang the events off, um, off Hound of the Baskervilles, which was, which was in the list. So it led us to this idea of kind of book detective events. But I wondered if you've read much Arthur Conan Doyle and, and whether you've enjoyed sort of Sherlock Holmes adaptations. Yes, and in fact, the new book, The Night Talks, does start with a quotation from The Hand of the Baskervilles. Yes, I read a lot of them when I, when I was younger, and I've reread them since. And yeah, I really, really like them. I think it, they're great. They're in some ways the the mystery has never been done better than than the way he does it and there's certain tropes that that he's that he does like um uh the family that sit sit in a line and then another family have to sit there to be them those sort of things and the dog that doesn't bark and uh you see um watson but you do not observe you know all those all those things uh, i don't know if you've ever read um Ronald Knox's rules of crime writing. He was a he was a crime writer in the in the twenties, also a, also a priest, incidentally. Mm. And he wrote these laws of crime writing. And he says the stupid friend of the detective, the Watson, <laughs> should be of the same intelligence as your average reader. Which is what a <laughs> cheek. But I mean that whole Holmes and Watson relationship. I think it is amazingly done in those books, and also amazingly done in the recent adaptation. I really did love the the Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm. Um, Martin Freeman adaptation thought that was very clever and the way they did modern technology that's probably not modern now but the way they they used that in in the in the adaptation was so so clever the way they did the Reichenbach Falls and him coming back to life and thought that was great I also really enjoyed Enola Holmes which yes. was on which was on um at Christmas I think wasn't yes. it about his sister amazing performance by Millie Bobby Brown I thought as her yeah. um, but it's there's I don't know what's happened to it but there was a, a, a I had heard that the Sherlock Holmes estate was suing the makers of that film yeah. for making Sherlock Holmes too human 
it's a very interesting thought isn't it how the ownership that we have on characters yeah, Henry, yeah. Henry, I, I saw Enola Holmes and I loved it I watched it with my daughter and um and she thought it was just brilliant and I thought oh how great to have this character but but I heard afterwards that they were they were unhappy with it and it was funny because he was quite a kind of he wasn't your typical Sherlock Holmes was he, he was kind of quite this handsome was Henry Cavill wasn't he so really handsome Yes, not your. Not, he didn't kind of ring true for me exactly, but um, but I just thought it was a really interesting idea and adaptation, and these things kind of you know go on and have lives of their own, don't they? But um, and wonderful to see you know women centre stage. You know that was that was fantastic. So yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Yeah, I've enjoyed lots of of adaptations. It's just interesting how um, that has become part of our vocabulary. Really, a lot of. Uh, Sherlock Holmesy type things, even the, the image and the the eyeglass and the hat and mm. all that. So yes, fantastic. Yeah. You often get asked about adaptations of your books, and do you have actors in mind who you would like to play the part? <laughs> I do get asked a bit, and I quite like being asked actually. Um, a TV company has got an option on the books, and they are working on a script. But this has happened to me. This is the third time this has happened, so I'm not kind of as excited as I was the first time. But yeah, it would be great. Um, so for what it's worth, I've always thought Ruth Jones would be a good Ruth. Oh wow, yeah. And Richard Armitage would be my Nelson, and probably um, David Tennant uh-huh. uh, would be Cathbad. What a cast! That, that would be, be great, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. this is my fantasy cast. <laughs> Somebody has asked, Caroline has asked, uh, she loves the Ruth Galloway books, is Ruth based on you? <laughs> Not really, no. Um, I mean, I guess there are things in Ruth that are like me. We're both keen on Bruce Springsteen and cats. <laughs> um, but actually, no, not really. I mean... Uh, Ruth's an atheist and I'm not she's an archaeologist I'm not I'm not but possibly more to the point she's very she's quite introverted and I'm not um and whenever I type the words Ruth said nothing I always think wow I wish somebody would say that about me I don't think anyone <laughs> writing my life story would say Dom or Ellie said nothing you know so she's I'm a very very, glad you very, <laughs> very different person from me I mean she's probably all sorts of things have gone into Ruth you know I always the character came to me, did come to me out of the blue, and I was uh, with, my, with my husband, Andy, who is an archaeologist. We were walking along marshland in Titchwell Marsh in North Norfolk. Uh, readers who know Norfolk will know that. And um, Andy happened to say that prehistoric people thought marshland was sacred because it's neither land nor sea, but something in between. They thought of it as a bridge to the afterlife. Neither land nor sea, neither life nor death, you know, like a liminal zone, an in-between place. And that's why you find bodies buried there, so-called bog bodies. And as soon as he said that, the whole idea for the, for the crossing places came into my head. And I did sort of see Ruth walking towards me. And I, I just sort of felt like out of the mist, really, if that doesn't sound too weird. And I just thought I knew everything about her in that instant, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but having said that, of course, characters have to come from somewhere. And there's probably bits of my sisters in there, my, my aunt who lives in Norfolk and um, some friends of mine. But... I don't I don't think she is very like me unfortunately really (laughs) Um, well I'm glad that you have a lot to say (laughs) 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 please may you give us an update to your characters that you provide at the end of the book it would be great to hear their latest thoughts and that's from Warwick oh thanks Warwick yeah so in the new book in the Nighthawks I've updated that bit at the end it was feeling it's difficult to do in a way because you do have to 
be aware that for some people that's going to be the first book they read. Yeah. And, it, and that is one of the trickiest things about writing a long series because you can't spend all your time as you're writing saying, so she met so-and-so who four years ago had done this. And, of course, you can't ever say she remembered four years ago an ex murdered Y, which is what you would say in life, isn't it? Yeah, Because you, you, you don't want to give that away necessarily. So um, it is a little difficult to do, but I realised they did need updating. So the new book, the one that's out last week, has an updated little um, who's who at the end. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you some more sort of generic book questions. I wanted to Great. ask about audio books. They're having a real renaissance at the moment. And I wondered if you're someone who ever listens to books and if there are any that you can recommend. It is amazing how uh, they have come up, isn't it? Mm. And I have to admit that I haven't been a huge audio books person, although I, I know some, some people really like the audio books versions of my books. And I think they're really, really well done. Um, but I haven't, I think partly it's because I used to often listen to them if we went on long journeys. We often used to drive to Italy in the summer when the kids were young and we'd have Harry Potter, those, those amazing sort of adaptations read by, by Stephen Fry on. Mm. And also more than that, though, are the ones that I remember as being utterly brilliant were the uh, Just William read yeah. by Martin Jarvis. And I guess that would always be my recommendation for the most amazing audio ever, because... Um, the, the, the Just Win the Richmond Compton Just William books are incredible. I love them as a child. Um, and there are four outlaws. So four little boys, really. I don't never know how old they are. They're about 11 or something. But Martin Jarvis gives them all different voices and different personalities. And he also does the elder sister Ethel and the elder brother Robert and Cook. And, you know, everybody has their own character. And there are some amazing sort of, you know, they need to tramp who, who tries to who cons them really into becoming tramps and he has an amazing voice and all these terrible ladies who have things like the league of pure goodness and they get William to join that so they would be my my, my recommendations but I have to it's something I have to get into again because I know that there are um the fact the, the postscript mergers um yeah as read by an actress called Nina Wadia and she's so good I want to read more of her uh, her um narrated books because she's so good oh that's interesting yeah yeah it does make a difference doesn't it the narrator I think it, it, it brings something to it um, it does I, I if I don't the summer I did listen to uh, a Nao Marsh book which uh because I wanted to reread it and I and I was driving somewhere I thought well I'll listen to it and um opening night which is one of my favorite Nao Marsh books so it's a book written by a woman a New Zealand woman yeah. The main character is a young New Zealand woman. She's 19, called Martin for some reason. No one ever knows why. Yet it was narrated by a posh British man. Oh. And I did think that wouldn't necessarily happen now, I don't think. No. Because it makes such a difference. You know, yeah. it really does, doesn't it? So if, if imagine if it had been a young New Zealand voice, well, the whole book would have felt different. So it did make me think, gosh, that's so important. Yeah. It's still um, good but yeah yeah makes no it does make a huge difference the um the sort of golden age of detective novels feature in the postscript murders and i just wondered um if you had any particular favorites in addition to neo marsh yes i mean i love i love the golden age um big agatha christie fan we teach agatha christie on, on the course at west Dean because you know there's some things that, that no one's done better really in terms of um plotting uh, and as i've said earlier sort of fan of the, the victorian era but i'm particularly fond of a writer called nancy spain 
who is not in print. I don't, I think she might be coming back into print actually. So I was asked to write something for the new edition. Anyhow, she wrote some amazing books. One is called R in the Month, which is set in a sort of seaside town. It could be Shoreham, it could be Brighton, it could be Seaford, could almost be Hythe, could be sort of anywhere. And it's about some, some, seaside town sort of out of season you know and we all know what that's like and it's about sort of oyster poison by oyster but she also wrote an amazing uh, book called cinderella goes to the morgue <laughs> absolutely recommend so. <laughs> great read and oh my gosh the cover as well if i could show you the cover well, you could just imagine it from cinderella goes to the morgue really and death goes Death Goes By on Skis and Poison for Teacher. And they're all great. She's an amazing writer. She was quite famous, I think, in the 30s as a panelist on TV shows. Uh, she was gay. She was a really clever, interesting woman. And her books are so funny and dark and atmospheric and all the things I like in a book. So if I had one Golden Age recommendation, probably would be Nancy Spain. That's fantastic. Thank you. Amanda says, I love your books, particularly the Rick Galloway series. Do you have a writing routine each day? Do you aim to cover a certain number of words? Do you plan your no novels minutely before you start writing? Or do you let things evolve a bit as you write? And that's Amanda and Lee Squinstead. Great question, Amanda. So, yeah, I do. I try and have a writing routine. I'm, I'm at the moment contracted to write two books a year. So I kind of have to write all the time really so I've got a cat as I said earlier on and uh, I've got a writing shed and every morning at about eight my cat comes up to the top of the garden and sits by the writing shed because he knows that's what I should be doing and this morning I followed his little paw prints in the snow up here so he was waiting for me to come so I try and write every day and I do try and write at least a thousand words a day I let the book sort of go over in my head I don't do lots of rewriting I, I really don't do I really just do one draft although I do change it a little bit as I go along not to say that but I don't then go back and redraft it it sort of it is it is what it is really I try and write a thousand words a day I don't plan a lot I used to do like a rough sort of um chapter plan just like a few lines per chapter if I've got my little notebook here there's a good thing about talking to people in their in their studies so you know I, I've got, got a little notebook here and I think that's a family tree there so I just sort of uh, jot things down uh, in my notebook um, but for the last few books starting with The Stranger Diaries which I think was about four books ago I didn't have any written plan for that and it's a very complicated mystery because it's told from three points of view and yeah, yes, and, it, and it's just very complex. And, be, and because I was able to do that without a written plan, that gave me a bit of confidence. And um, somebody quoted to me as E.L. Doctorow said that writing a book is like driving in the dark with your headlights on. You can only see a little way in front of you, but you can do the whole journey like that. <laughs> so I, that gave me the confidence to think I didn't have to necessarily have a plan. Um, but I will jot things down as I go along, really. But I am quite, I am quite disciplined. And the one thing that I have learned from having to write for a living, really, is not to wait for inspiration, just to sit down and write. And then inspiration will come. The muse catches you working. I don't know who said that. Because, <laughs> I don't know, somebody. I think you've answered Geraldine's question, which was a similar one, which was about whether your plots were inspiration or perspiration and how much uh, and how much sort of surprise there was in it as you sat down. So uh, It's sometimes a bit of a surprise. Sometimes, you know, somebody knocks at the door and you don't know who it is. It's quite <laughs> fun, though, isn't it? That does keep it fun. <laughs> I've got some questions about the Brighton Mysteries. So um, there's a couple oh, here, one from Rachel, who said, I've loved the Brighton Mysteries. Where did your inspiration come from for the Magic Men characters? Oh, what a great 
question, Rachel. Thank you for asking about those. But I said to Katie at the beginning of this evening, if I don't mention the Brighton Mysteries, remind okay. me to mention them because there's a new one coming out this year. So it'll be the, the Midnight Hour, which is number six in that series, is out in October this year. Well, Brighton Mysteries are about variety really the last days of musical and the inspiration for that was my granddad my granddad was a, a variety performer musical performer he was a comedian he was called dennis laws he fought in the first world war and after the first world war which he, he lied about his age to join up so he was not quite 18 when he joined up he saw such terrible things in the war i think and he he always said that afterwards there was only one job he could do and that was to become a comedian and that's what he did and that was his life. Um, and he was a great, lovely man and um, brought up my, my mum as a single father. You know, he was a great, um, great dad as well. But he um, when he died, he left me his playbills. We were really close. And the names on them, they're things like, oh, Lou Lenny and her unrideable mule. <laughs> you know, what's that about? Petrovas performing ponies. Uh uh, in big letters, so, so it must have been quite famous, Raydini, the gay deceiver. I don't know who that was or who was deceiving. And those were the inspiration for those books. I realised I had to start writing about them. But also Grandad was on the playbill a few times with a very famous at the time magician called Jasper Maskelyne, which has got to be one of the best names ever. Um, but Jasper Maskelyne had an interesting backstory in the, in the Second World War. He'd been asked by Churchill to put together a group of magicians to help with a war effort help with sort of misdirection and um sleight of hand really uh, in the war effort so that's the backstory of the magician in in those books max mephisto it's taken really from that and my granddad was the inspiration for the books somebody else had a question about these books um it's sue and she says um edgar stevens lived in willsden as a child isabella now you see them lives in dollis hill there's also a reference to gladstone park where my grandfather worked I've not read another book that includes these places. Was there some significance to your choice? That's so nice. Thank you for noticing that. Well, South London sort of generally comes into my books quite a lot. My family lived in Wilsden actually before I was born because I'm a sort of bit of an afterthought child. And we had a friend in Dollis Hill, a, a lovely Italian uh, friend we used to go and see and he still was like going to his house in Dollis Hill. So that must have been where that comes from. My sister lived um, in Shooters Hill, um, near Eltham as well that's why Ruth is brought up in Eltham and I lived um so I was I was born in London actually but we moved to Brighton when I was five but I went to university in London went to King's College London and I lived in London for 10 years after that mainly sort of in South London so I lived in uh, Clapham and Streatham and Brixton um so South London tends to feature quite a lot in my books my sister as, as I say was in Shooters Hill so Blackheath, Eltham all those places turn up yeah so please you notice Dollis Hill that's lovely <laughs> <laughs> and the last question around the Brighton Murder series was Caroline says she also loves the series might you write another one which you've already answered and then it says it felt as if the last one ended with Sam and Emma thinking of setting up a detective agency if yes Max must be in it <laughs> so uh... well, thank you for, for giving me that great intro so yes not giving too much away to say in the midnight hour a theatrical impresario has been found dead and his, his widow, who is actually the suspect number one, determines that she's only going to ask, a, a, she's, she's a born again, a, a new age feminist in, in 1965. She only wants women to investigate it. So she calls in Emma and Sam to investigate the case. But of course, Max is involved and Edgar too. And Bob, who is, you know, plodding along being, being a detective, um, because Max is actually appearing with the, with the impresario's son in an adaptation of Dracula, 
which meant that I could take them to Whitby and go mad <laughs> with vampires and Dracula. So do hope you like it. Brilliant. That sounds great. We've got another question about the postscript murders and Christine wants to know what influenced you to set it in Shoreham? Well, um, such a nice, I do really like Shoreham actually, partly because, um, you know, I've, I've lived in Brighton area for most of my life really. And I wanted to go a little bit outside Brighton also because my aunt Marge had a retirement flat actually in Seaford, but um, something about those sort of seaside retirement flats made me want to write about them, incidentally, before Richard Osman did it. <laughs> um, but hey, his, his is a great book, so I'm not complaining about that. <laughs> Sometimes things are in the zeitgeist, though. It's so strange when, when, you know, I think there are a few books I've read recently with elderly sleuths in them. But anyhow, so that was a little bit of the inspiration for Peggy Smith and her and her seaside retirement sort of complex. Um, but also because I teach, as I said um, earlier on, I teach at West Dean in Chichester. So I know that area quite well. Um, in The Stranger Diaries, there's a, there's a school in that that is kind of based a little bit on West Dean and a little bit on Cardinal Newman, actually, to be honest with you. Um, so... Um, so all that area Stenning comes into the book. So it's, I think it's just another part of the country I know very well. But Shoreham has a lot of the things that you need for a good crime setting, I think. It's, it has a range of different sort of places to live. Uh, it can be very beautiful. It can be not so beautiful. It's a port, so people come in and out. And it also has an airport. People come and go quite a lot from Shoreham Airport in the, in the postscript murders. And uh, my... my dear friend Nancy um her dad um has a plane at, at Shoreham Airport and so I've been flying there quite a few times so you need I, I think if you need for a crime setting in my opinion you need that you need history of course there's mass really really great history all around that area you need it to be a little bit spooky when necessary you need it to have entrances and exits um, and you need a range of, of different sorts of people who could live there. So I think Shoreham and West Sussex generally has all those things. And Harbinder's a great character. She's oh, I'm glad you like Harbinder. Yeah. She she did sort of grow from being, she was the detective in Stranger Diaries. And um, she did sort of need to be in this book when I, when I realised that I was going to have a detective in this book. It sort of had to be her. And I must admit, I really do like writing about her. So I'm glad you like her. I think we just get a couple more questions there are loads um that are coming in and what's really nice as well is that we've got audience members commenting on things so when you were talking about audiobooks somebody said ellie's middle grade a girl called justice is a fabulous series on audiobook oh, <laughs> so it's she really girl nice. called justice isn't she amazing the, the imogen oh i'm afraid her name's gone out of my head but she's so good because she's she's adult but she sounds really youthful and young and yes and i should say oh my goodness thank you katie i should say there's a new girl called justice book this year as well yes. uh, the ghost in the garden is out in may Gosh, you are busy, aren't you? That's really well, yeah, it's got to do something, you know. <laughs> Very good. Amanda says, often evil characters in literature are so much more interesting and complex than the good ones. Which villains have you found most interesting? Have you ever written a particular baddie that you're proud of creating? What a great question. I think mm. it's Milton, isn't it, um, who was in Paradise Lost was described, uh, was, was said to be of the devil's side without knowing it. And certainly Paradise Lost, which I studied at school, that Satan is the best character when he says, uh, all good to me is lost, evil be thou my good, you know. Wow. <laughs> um, 
I tend to end up liking my characters. So I've never really written an out and out evil person. But there are certainly people like Cathbed, for example, who kind of started off a bit sort of suspicious, who have ended up being sort of, you know, um, central to, to the to the family really max mephisto equally he's he's a sort of a little bit morally ambiguous at the beginning but um now is is sort of you know and now i've got very fond of him you know i hope i haven't sort of weakened him by getting fond of him so i've never written an out and out evil character but i have to say if we're talking favorite villains it has to be count fosco from the woman in white which oh, is yeah. my favorite book i think you might if you were to ask my favorite book, I'm well, there we go. We've got the Woman in White is my favorite <laughs> book. It was hard to choose between that, The Moonstone, and No Name. But The Woman in White is my favorite, partly because it has my favorite character, um, Marion Halcombe, who I think is the best heroine ever, and it has Count Fosco. Now, I'm half Italian, and I normally don't like Italians being the villains because there was a certain period where Italians were always villainous. Uh, either villainous or funny, and both are terrible. Um, but Count Fosco, apparently uh, Wilkie Collins said, no Englishman could ever have that much ingenuity. He's just an amazingly good villain because you do end up almost rooting for him. And he saves Marion's life at one point, and he does kind of love her. And there is a thing, there is a, a lovely storyline in it that I did use a bit in The Stranger Diaries where Marion writes a diary and like all those Victorian heroines she sort of writes it while she's climbing across a rooftop you know that's climbing <laughs> over the roof but Count Fosco finds it and he not only reads it he writes in it oh as a diarist myself I can't think of anything more villainous and he writes this bit saying um to uh, greetings from a sincere admirer I mean that's so villainous and so wonderful so that Count happens. Fosco yeah, yeah. Well, I'm really glad that we've ended on your favourite book. Yes, I'm glad we got that in, definitely. That I ought to have asked you um, when we're talking about novels that shape the world and what would go in your list. So that's really great that we've been able to, to end it on that last one. Thank you to everyone who sent in questions. I'm really sorry I didn't get to all of them, but we've had um, over 200 people join us. So um, lots of questions came through as we were talking. Thank you so much for such a brilliant conversation. Thank you to everyone for joining in and, and coming in this evening and for all your brilliant questions. We've got such a great, lovely community of engaged readers in West Sussex. And it's we're really wonderful. grateful. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to, and Katie did such a good job with the questions because it's quite <laughs> hard to keep track of them. But lovely to think of so many people tuning in and so many brilliant questions. Yes, yeah, it's really, it, really lovely. It's, we've had some lovely comments from people saying they've really enjoyed the evening. So, so that's really brilliant and yeah thank you Ellie for such a super event and I hope everybody has a lovely rest of their evening but thank, thank you, you very much uh, thank you for asking me Katie thank you for everyone who joined in just quickly to say Isabel and Jane are both wonderful women and brilliant writers so tune in for them yes thank you Katie thank you for asking me I've really enjoyed it thank you so many lovely comments of people just saying it's brightened up their lockdown and oh, really good. looking forward to the next one me too and, uh, <laughs> yeah and I hope that we can do this in person after all yeah of, um, these restrictions yeah, that would be lovely. Thank you very much, everybody. It's Thank you, lovely. everyone. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Stay safe. We hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Ellie Griffiths. If you did, why not check out our chat with Isabel Ashdown? We'll have lots more content for you next month, and you can make sure that you don't miss it by subscribing to Lend Us Your Ears, a podcast by West Sussex Libraries. Happy reading. We'd like to thank Ella Griffiths, Katie Gledhill and the BBC Novels That Shaped Her World campaign. 
I'm Sam White, and the music Signs to Nowhere by Shane Ivers at silvermansounds.com.